Luke chapter 9. Welcome, everyone. Unfortunately, you do not have a handout this morning. I'm so sorry. Dennis would say, I have failed you. Probably, yeah. But hopefully the content's rich enough uh, to satisfy your Sunday school longings. All right, well, let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so delighted to be able to gather as your people in this place this morning. Uh, What a blessing it is to be able to meet together with the body of Christ, to experience biblical fellowship, to open up your word, both in this classroom and all the others. We are so thankful for those whom you have raised up to lead during this Sunday school hour to equip the future generations with the gospel. Father, we are, we are so thankful. And God, we ask now your blessing upon our time as we gaze upon the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that it would be used by the Holy Spirit to um, enlarge our hearts to run hard after you, to prepare our hearts and minds for corporate worship to respond in doxology and praise. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9, if I have the text correct, we're looking at the transfiguration. And I, I really love this particular passage. Um, I was assigned to go through verse 45, but or 43, but we're going to probably just hone in on verses 28 through 35. And so if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I read from God's word. Now, about eight days after these sayings, so Jesus was teaching, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. (coughs) Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I want to take us back to what he had just previously spoke on before this eight days had, had transpired and we get to the transfiguration because I think it's important. Um, so just briefly, just to hear the, the previous 
few verses, and he said to all, this is verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then here, verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That last verse, there are some who are with me right now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Um, I think understanding the context in which he just spoke those words and then what happens eight days later helps us understand, I believe, in this particular context, what he's referring to when he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, Many suggestions have been made as to how some of the disciples might have been expecting to perceive the powerful presence of the kingdom within their lifetime after hearing Jesus' words. And, and what I'm not saying is that these other possibilities are, are still at play in a reality. So just, for example, they include the death of Jesus on the cross and the symbolic tearing of the temple curtain. Surely that is... Uh, some who experienced that before they tasted death are seeing the kingdom of God. So that would be one example. His victory over death and the resurrection, surely that's another example of them experiencing the kingdom of God. Another would be his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the powerful coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or the dy dynamic growth of the church despite all the persecution and opposition. All of these would be examples of those who had not experienced death yet experiencing the kingdom of God. Or lastly, even the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. All of those examples would be the fulfillment of Christ's words that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That could all be you know, a, a right argument to be made that that's what he was referring to, some of these examples in particular. But I want to submit to you that if we stay within the context of Luke's gospel and the other gospel accounts of the transfiguration, the very next event that happens is them getting a glimpse before they've tasted death of the kingdom of God on this mountaintop. So while I'm not saying that those other examples are not what he's referring to, I'm just saying like within the context, only eight days later, some who were with him experienced, had not tasted death yet, and they, they got a glimpse, they got to see the kingdom of God put on display in the transfiguration. So I want us to actually hone in and say, okay, there, there is something mighty and powerful that happens in this particular episode, this event before Peter, James, and John uh, that we need to really spend some time thinking about, um, meditating on, reflecting. And so... I want us to look at what takes place eight days after Jesus says those things in verse 27. Um, so first, let's, let's just kind of get our, our bearings. Uh, what had happened eight days earlier was that Jesus was in 
the town of Bethsaida, and then outside on the outskirts of that town, there's the feeding of the 5,000, if you remember, five loaves, two fish. And then Jesus poses questions to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And we hear from Peter this confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Peter says, the Christ of God. That's his response in verse 29. These are big things that are happening within the disciples' lives as they're witnessing who Christ truly is. They're getting a greater glimpse of his glory and understanding that he truly is the eternal son of God come in the flesh. And so we get to um, the response of Peter and Jesus saying in verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now for us, we hear Jesus' words and we're like, of course, he knew that he was going to the cross. Jesus had just walked with his disciples, fed 5,000. Peter's response is, you truly are the Son of God, Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death on the cross three days later, raised from the dead. But, but for the disciples to begin to process this, when when Peter makes this confession. This is before Jesus tells him that he's going, to be, he's going to go to the cross and die. Peter is confessing that you are the awaited Messiah that is going to, in their minds, come and, and overtake the physical you know, powers at be, the, the Roman authorities. The, the Messiah is going to be the one who is actually physically going to take over and overthrow all the enemies of God. And so their expectations of what the Messiah is going to, who he is, what he's going to be, and how it's going to play out in their lives, and it's so very different than what they just hear from Jesus saying, brothers, I'm going to the cross, and this is actually how the kingdom of God is going to be fulfilled, brought, brought um, brought to life, so to speak. And so they're, they're processing all this, struggling you can only imagine to wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying, the confusion and the concern, and that's all leading us to this eight days letter, later and what happens on um, the mount. So Jesus is going to um, display on the mount what both I want to submit to you the disciples need to see and experience and what even Jesus needs to see and experience. So we're going to look at that as we look at the transfiguration. So uh, four things that I want us to kind of hone in on as we look at this passage. We see in the transfigured Christ, his majestic glory. We see that in this, in this uh, passage of scripture. We see... Um, a better understanding of Moses and Elijah and their ministries that were pointing to the Messiah. We see God's Shekinah glory and voice on the mountaintop. And then we see Jesus standing alone. All of these pieces are so important um, in understanding what's all happening in the transfiguration. So first, the transfigured Christ and his majestic glory. So verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. 
and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, when we look at that passage, it's so helpful that we have the other gospel, um, Matthew and Mark, that both speak to this transfiguration that kind of help give us a full-orbed understanding of, of what was going on here. So, for example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the word used there was he was transfigured before them. And that Greek word is where we get the word metamorphosis, that transfigured before them. And so that, that's, that's helpful for us to think about. So a caterpillar enters into a cocoon, and there's that metamorphosis that happens, and it becomes a butterfly. And what is experienced before the disciples' eyes is that same kind of transfiguration of Jesus, a glimpse for that moment before them. Um, Jesus' experience, or he experiences a transfiguration where temporarily, for a brief moment, this is, this is amazing to think about, the veil of his humanity at that moment, what the disciples are experiencing is lifted, and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory, which was always there, rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly ministry. Now, the, the manifestation of the glory of God was manifested in different ways throughout the life and ministry of Christ, but the transfiguration experience was like no other before the disciples' eyes. So one commentator put it like this, or to put it another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-incarnation glory, and this is beautiful to think about. It was a, it was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory, all happening right there before the disciples. So this, this helps us. If you, if you find yourself dwelling solely on the humanity of Christ and lose sight of the eternal Son of God, 100% God, 100% man, the God-man, this transfiguration event helps us remember who Christ is is. So it wasn't that he was changing before, that, before them at this moment. It was simply that the veil was being pulled back, so to speak, where the disciples could actually see the glory of Christ, his majestic glory, before them. In Matthew's parallel account, chapter 17, verse 2, this is what he wrote, and when he was transfigured before him, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This, this description is also helpful for us. The idea of someone's face shining with unbearable intensity actually should help us think it should be reminiscent of the Old Testament story of Moses. If you remember, when Moses was on the mountain with God, he begged to receive a glimpse of God's glory. He said, please show me your glory in Exodus 33. And God replied, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. But God went on to say, here, um, sorry, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. When Moses got this momentary glimpse of the glory of God, 
the experience was so intense, if you remember, that when he came back down to the people, the glory of God was so brilliant that when Moses gazed upon it, his physical face, skin was, was altered. If you remember, he comes back down to the people and he's literally like, all we can really tell from the text is like glowing. There's a glory coming off of him, radiating from him. And it frightened the people so much that they were like, okay, hold up, you gotta cover that. Moses would actually put a veil on when he had those experiences with God. Um, it was so intense, the people of Israel were afraid to come near him. That was, a, that was kind of a, a similar experience, but what I want us to see that there is a huge difference. And it just so happens that Moses and Elijah are with Christ in this experience. The disciples thought so highly of Moses and Elijah, obviously, what God had used them for within the people of God. But here's the difference. The glow of Moses' face was a mere reflection of the glory he saw in the presence of God. Moses' face was not the source of the light. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples witnessed the actual glory of God, not a reflected glory. This is really important to see the uniqueness of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the only one who we should worship. The source of the light that the disciples saw came from within Christ himself. His glory was bursting forth before their very eyes. Not reflecting the glory of God, he is God reflecting his glory, that veil being pulled back. Years later, Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter speaking as one of the disciples, heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I, I hope that this exercise of walking through the passage is, is pushing us towards just understanding the, the weight of the glory that, that the disciples were experiencing on the mountain, on the holy mountain that day. What else did the disciples witness? As Jesus appeared in his majestic glory, again, we noted Elijah and Moses came to speak with him. Can you imagine? So the, the, the disciples were in like a heavy fog, deep sleep. They come to it and they see Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. Now, like if you're working through Mark's gospel, we're not told what they were talking about. But Luke actually gives us the content of their discussion, which is pretty pretty phenomenal to have given to us in God's word exactly the, the, the content of what they were speaking of. So verse 31, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every 
word that we read is exactly what God intended for us to have from his holy word. So the word departure in verse 31, this is so rich. The word departure in Greek is where we get the word exodus. Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about his exodus. Moses, the one who led God's people through the exodus out of Egypt. Jesus is talking with them about what that was all pointing to. He is the culmination of all of redemptive history. It should make us just kind of stand back and just just mouth open in awe and wonder of how God orchestrated all things to unfold the way that he did. All who were covered by the blood of the spotless lamb in the Exodus pointed to Christ being the perfect spotless lamb whose blood would cover the sins of his people. Freedom from the bondage of sin would be the new Exodus. They were talking about the cross and Jesus' death, about his forging the new covenant in his blood. You may ask, but, but why out of all the, the characters of old, was it Moses and Elijah? Maybe you've never asked that, but, but why not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Well, why don't we see other patriarchs standing there And while I don't have an exhaustive answer for you, just that first note about them speaking about the Exodus, but I think we have more reason to understand why it was Moses and why it was Elijah. So if you think about Moses and Elijah's ministry, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. God's law was given on tablets of stone during Moses' ministry to the people of God. So you've got the law kind of uh, thinking through the Old Testament, it, it culminated upon Moses' ministry, the law. And then you think about Elijah, one of the, the main prophets of the Lord. The main purpose of the law and the prophets was, was really to prepare the way for the Messiah. So to kind of help, um, thinking about Jesus speaking on the road to Emmaus. I think I've got this passage somewhere. We'll get to it. No, here we go. A precursor to the road to Emmaus. Hear Jesus' words. This is after the resurrection. He speaks to two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And hear this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the law and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so we have Moses and Elijah, pillars of representing all of God's speaking and guiding of his people of old, the law and the prophets, these two men that symbolize those realities and all pointing to how all these things culminated on the Lord Jesus Christ. One other thing that in R.C. Sproul's commentary on Luke, he brought in some amazing insight, 
So in my own devotions this morning, I'm in Numbers 20. You may go, man, is he behind in his daily, uh, yearly reading of the Bible? I'm not sure, but I'm trekking through the old, hoping to work through the whole um, old and new this year in my own devotions. But in the Lord's providence, Numbers chapter 20 is where I was this morning. Now you're going, what are we talking about? This is where Moses strikes the rock when he wasn't supposed to strike the rock. The people were complaining about water, the, the, the water in Meribah, um, and God tells them, or God tells Moses and Aaron, you're gonna go, you're gonna have your staff and you're gonna speak these words and water will be supplied to the people miraculously. All the glory is pointed back to me. Moses strikes twice, I believe, the rock. Water still does come forth, but it's during this episode where we may go, man, all that he had done faithfully and one thing caused him not to be able to enter into the promised land, but that just shows us that we have a a very low view of sin and rebellion towards God. But him striking the rock in disobedience, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. So this is what R.C. Sproul says, keen insight. Because of his sin, Moses was prevented from entering the promised land along with the children of Israel. That was, very, that was made clear in Deuteronomy chapter 34, for example. But in a far more wonderful way, he did get there. Many hundreds of years later, he stood within the promised land and spoke personally with the Messiah. I had never thought of that through the lens of Moses being on the Mount of Transfiguration and what that would have meant for him who actually got to stand in the promised land and speak to the Messiah that it was all pointing to. Just kind of amazing little rabbit trail that I think is all kind of helping build this reason of like, well, why those two? I think there was a lot going on there. Before we move on, I know I'm covering a lot. Any thoughts or comments? I know we're in Sunday school, so we can have some, some interaction. Is this all like, oh, we've heard this before? Pretty, pretty good insight. Beautifully said. Better than I did it. That was good. No, that's awesome. I hope y'all could hear that. Anything else? Feel good about where we're going? Okay. I want to make sure I know I won't, I won't get through it all. It's too good. And our Sunday school hour is too short. Okay, Peter's response. Verse 32, I'll read. Verse 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, excuse me, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. It seems that Peter's perspective, again, is being confirmed here that he was viewing the Messiah through the lens of power and dominion. So he's seeing Moses, Elijah, and now the Messiah all together. Let's make some tents, meaning let's keep this party going the way it is. This is going to usher in the kingdom of God for sure in a way that is even better than I could have ever imagined. Thinking about what Moses did and what uh, Elijah said and what the Messiah is here to accomplish, let's build tents and keep this thing as is so that we can usher this, culminate this kingdom in. And in Mark's gospel, I want to kind of push on this reality that the disciples are only seeing partially. In Mark's gospel in chapter 8, there was a healing of a blind man, and it was done in stages. Do you all remember that? So he could kind of see some things kind of foggy, like they look like trees walking around. And then Jesus continued to heal and create clearer sight. Could Jesus... Could could Jesus just heal that man instantly and have perfect vision? Of course, but I think there was a a teaching moment even in the progression or stages of the clarity of sight. With the disciples, they would get a little bit of a picture of who Christ is and what the kingdom's gonna look like, and then they would need some more and more clarity and help from God. God is so patient with us, and really that's what's happening even here on the mount. So rather than getting a harsh rebuke, he doesn't even know what he's saying. Those, those words just kind of hang in the air a little bit. No, no action is taken, but the events keep unfolding. And so as he was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now the cloud overshadowing them is also very significant, At the time of the Exodus, when God brought forward the Israelites with signs and wonders, God descended in a cloud to lead them through the wilderness. Then in accordance with the command of God, the Israelites constructed the tabernacle. A cloud descended and dwelt in the most holy place. Later, Solomon built the temple. Again, the cloud descended and filled the most holy place. Then, this is important, many years later during the invasion of the Babylonians, Ezekiel in chapters 10 and 11 sees a vision and in it he sees the glory of God departing from the midst of Israel. For centuries the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God was gone and here on the mountain the disciples behold the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of the presence of God and they hear the voice of God. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So kind of that, that clarifying need of the disciples in what transpires, it actually is bringing more clarity. So Peter wants to build tents for all three. After the voice of the Lord comes, this is hugely important. Moses and Elijah are gone. It is just the Lord Jesus, only Christ standing before them, and the voice says, listen to him. This is huge for Jewish ears who the prophet of the Lord was Moses, and Elijah was a prophet of the Lord. We hear in Deuteronomy 18.5, 
there is a new prophet like Moses coming. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. That's Moses speaking. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. That was Deuteronomy 18, 15. We hear now in the transfiguration, God the Father speaking, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Everything culminates on Christ. Then we get Hebrews chapter one and it all starts to kind of click into place. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus standing before them, it is made clear he is the ultimate expression of truth. He is the new prophet like Moses. Everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. I want to try to make sure we get to the last point. Or the last few, sorry. Let's see where we are. I also want us to see um, that the transfiguration was an encouragement for Christ. So we, we've seen little glimpses of... Uh, the disciples' vantage point, even possibly Moses' vantage point, and from, from Christ's vantage point. There is a turning point in the gospel where Jesus moves from revealing to his disciples who he is to now revealing what he has come to do. His face, this chapter 9 is pivotal in, in the gospel of Luke, his face was now pointed towards Jerusalem, and the moment on the mount was to also encourage Christ in what lies ahead for him. So while we're getting a glimpse of his glory, we also do need to remember his humanity. We must not lose sight of his suffering, all that he's about to endure as he prepares to experience punishment and wrath on all of his chosen elect ones coming on Calvary's cross, from whom God the Father had eternally had delight upon the Son. The Son will on the cross experience that eternal delight turned away while he bears our, our wrath that is due us, God's wrath that is due us. And so there is much happening here also from, from Christ's perspective of hearing the blessing from the Father, being, if you will, again affirmed before his disciples, before Moses and Elijah, you are the one who will take the place of your people upon Calvary's cross. The transfigured Christ reveals to us the cost of his death. And so a question to ponder this morning, do we appreciate what he has done for us? When we see who Jesus really is the eternal son of God in all of his majestic glory, do we revel and marvel that the eternal son would be born a babe and live a life that we could not live, perfectly obeying the father and dying the death that we deserve to die? 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to end with some, uh, a passage from Philippians. So we're in March. We're looking towards Easter, the resurrection day, resurrection Sunday. And the transfiguration provides a glimpse of what we will see in our Savior when he comes and what we will be like when we are transformed as well as his people, resurrected. <clears throat> so closing with Philippians chapter 3, and then we'll pray. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray. Father, we are so, so very thankful for your word, so very thankful for our Messiah, our King, our Lord. To see the transfigured Christ in this passage, to behold the, the glory that is due him and him alone is so good for our souls. I pray, Father, that it would bring encouragement to us as we ponder um, the love that you have for sinners that you would send your only begotten Son Father, may we respond in praise and worship. May Christ be lifted high in this place. May we see the reality of the weight of our sin and what it took to accomplish salvation on our behalf and glory in our Redeemer. And we pray all of this in his wonderful